Hello, I'm your host Kota, and welcome back to another episode of Against Japanism podcast, destabilizing Japanese history from the left. In this two part series, I will be speaking to Dr. Robert Stoltz about the anti fascist philosophy of Tosaka Jun, a Marxist philosopher and cultural critic active during the 1930s. Tosaka is often associated with the Kyoto School, a group of academics who studied together at Kyoto Imperial University, led by his academic advisor Nishida Kitaro, who were influenced by German idealist philosophers such as Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, and Heidegger. Some Kyoto School philosophers, such as Nishida himself and Miki Kiyoshi, Actually, traveled to Germany to study under Heidegger. Now, some of you may know that Heidegger was an ardent supporter of Nazism and a member of the Nazi Party himself, which is a very important context to keep in mind when discussing the philosophy of Nishida and other Kyoto School philosophers. However, as the political tendency of Nishida and other Kyoto School philosophers became increasingly And somewhat predictably right wing and supportive of Japan's imperialist ambitions in Asia, Tosaka conversely turned to Marxism and adapted the method of dialectical and historical materialism to advocate for class struggle and scientific socialism, and denounced his former colleagues as ideological spokespeople for fascism. In 1932, Tosaka co founded. Yuibutsuron Kenkyukai, or Yuiken for short, which translates as Society for the Study of Materialism. While Yuiken presented itself as mainly an intellectual, not necessarily political organization dedicated to studying Marxism, Tosaka's outspoken stance against fascism, capitalism, and imperialism was heavily censored by the Japanese state. As a result, Yuiken was forced to disband, and Tosaka was arrested and imprisoned numerous times throughout the 1930s and 1940s, until he tragically died in prison in 1945. In spite of the censorship by the state, Tosaka never gave up and wrote prolifically about a variety of topics such as capitalism, fascism, time, space, science, film. Fashion, the emperor system, and policing. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Stoltz, is a historian of modern Japan, teaching at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. He is a co editor of Tosaka Jun, a critical reader, a collection of essays by Tosaka translated into English. He is also the author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution and Politics in Japan from 1870 to 1950 from Duke University Press. Recently, Robert completed a full translation of one of Tosaka's books, The Japanese Ideology, published in 1935, named after the German ideology by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. The book is subtitled quote, A Critique of Japanism, Fascism, Liberalism and ideology in contemporary Japan.、Unquote. 
Tosaka defines Japanism as the Japanese form of fascism that took the form of feudalism. However, unlike the Kozaha Marxist who took the stance that fascism in Japan was a product of feudal remnants in the countryside that held back the development of capitalism in Japan. Tosaka took the position that Japan in the 1930s was fully capitalist, specifically monopoly capitalist or imperialist, and this feudalism was merely an ideology redeployed by the Japanese bourgeoisie to support capitalism and cover up the class antagonisms that were intensifying in Japan at the time. As the subtitle suggests, in the Japanese ideology, Tosaka undertakes a critique not only of Japanism and fascism, but also liberalism, particularly cultural liberalism, which reduces liberalism to moral attitudes and sentiments. According to Tosaka, liberalism was, and I would argue still is today, not only intellectually and politically defenseless against fascism, but enables and reinforces it. While Tosaka himself was sadly defeated in his philosophical combat against fascism, his thought remains relevant to this day for those confronting fascism and the Japanese ideology in Japan and abroad. It was a lot of fun talking to Robert. He's a very friendly guy and he was kind enough to talk with me for nearly three hours, way beyond our scheduled time frame which I managed to edit it down to an hour and a half. I'm presenting the first half of the interview today, but I will be publishing the second part very soon, so please stay tuned for that. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at AgainstJapanismPodcast. You can also email me at AgainstJapanism at gmail.com. Your feedback and criticism are always welcome and hugely appreciated. Without further ado, here is part one of Against Japanism interview with Dr. Robert Stoltz. Enjoy. I'm Robert Stoltz. I'm currently uh, Associate Professor of History, Modern Japan at the University of Virginia. And before that, I was Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee. And before that, I got my PhD at the University of Chicago in the History Department. Good chunk of your career um, you spent translating and writing about Tosaka Jun and uh, his philosophy. Who was Tosaka Jun? Can you tell us about his life and why you are interested in his work? Sure, I can tell you some. Uh, I don't have all the details of all the biography, but the most interesting aspects for me are Tosaka occupies a really interesting intersection in the intellectual world of pre-war Japan, 20s and 30s. And that is, he was a student at Kyoto Imperial University and trained under Nishida Kitaro and uh, Tanabe Hajime and many others. And so he was well-versed with what is called the Kyoto School of Philosophy. And he was also classmates with Miki Kiyoshi and other greats of this time. But he was also part of the mid to late 20s Marxist discourse when it really when Japanese Marxism really became theoretical and theoretically coherent and very theoretically creative. And this happened largely in the 20s when you started to get translations 
of Leninist texts and the like. And so Tosaka is at in between or really putting together both of those huge discourses at the time and was able to do incredibly original, creative, and powerful thinking, even though we, we, we must say that, um, not to confuse anyone, he, he was firmly planted in the Marxist theoretical side, but he had such great insight into the Kyoto School that he's one of the best critics and, and critiquers of that philosophy. And this is how and from where he started talking about liberalism, fascism, materialism, their relations, similarities, and their big differences. And so that spot, uh, that moment and that place and intellectual place is why he's so interesting. A few other things about him. He was in the 30s from 1932 to 1938. He was the editor and a member of the group, the Yubutsuron Kenkyukai often shortened to the UEKEN or Center for Materialism Research or Research in Materialism with many other major Marxist and materialist thinkers at the time. And this, as I mentioned, lasted from 32 to 38 and shut down in 38 after intense harassment and, and outright suppression and oppression from the state. And also in 38, Tosaka was arrested and did two years in prison he was released in 40, but almost immediately rearrested and sentenced again and went to prison where he died on August 9th, 1945 from malnutrition, maltreatment, uh, really horrific conditions. That was in Nagano, in a, in a prison in Nagano that he died in 45. So his career is quite short. I mean, he wasn't that old. He was born in 1900 and died in 45, but he was publishing really from if, depending on how we count his graduate student work, he was publishing from 31 to 38 when he was no longer able to publish after going into prison that first time. So it's amazing how much he produced and how much original creative stuff he produced in that really short amount of time in between graduation and imprisonment. As you know, uh, this podcast is called Against uh, Japanism. And uh, it was central to Tosaka's philosophizing and uh, a target of his criticism. What is Japanism according to Tosaka? How did it originate? What is its affinity with liberalism? And who are his in interlocutors and or opponents in formulating his critique of fascism and liberalism? On the one hand, I can answer that what is Japanism? He eventually does say this is Japanism. On the other hand, that's the end of a, an enormous amount of his entire thought of materialism versus idealism and historical time and space and everydayness and common sense. So we might have to back up a little bit, but to start with the conclusion, which is what is Japanism, is he says, straightforwardly in uh, the text I just finished a draft translation of the Japanese ideology of 1935 revised in 1936. He says Japanism is the Japanese form of fascism. He's very clear on this, that Japan is a fascist country. And maybe we can talk about that later because not everyone agrees. I do, but not everyone agrees. And so Japanism is the Japanese form of fascism. Now, fascism, therefore, is a bigger category, and it can take different forms. 
the form it took in Japan was called Japanism. And what he means by that, he says at the very end of the uh, second edition of the Japanese ideology, Japanism is the form of fascism that took the form of feudalism. In Japan, you had all these feudal elements in it. Uh, but that's a big point because there's a bunch of ways you can think about feudal elements being in Jap Japan in the 1930s. And to be clear, and maybe we can talk about it in, in a different way later, he does not mean the standard understanding of the Kozaha theory of feudal remnants that were persisting through time and made it through the Meiji Re Re Revolution and survived into this period. He's talking about a much more active, consciously redeployed understanding of feudal elements. In this, he's very close to Uno Kozo, who I'm not an expert on. But so when he says Japanism is the Japanese form of fascism, and it is a form of fascism in which feudalism was the mechanism by which fascism worked. Now, I haven't defined fascism yet, but we can do that later. I don't know if that helps, but Japanism is fascism. And then if we start tracing backwards for him, very importantly, fascism is a form of capitalism. And then to get to your question of what's its affinity to liberalism, it is born out of liberalism. Fascism is born out of liberalism for Tosaka because they share so many, what he calls occasionally family resemblances and share so many philosophical uh, methodologies and worldviews and logics that in the end, and this is the big point of his book, The Japanese Ideology, in the end, Liberalism and fascism are so close, liberalism is incapable of fighting fascism. It's intellectually defenseless when faced with fascism. On its own, it can pretend it is this self-contained new theory, new ideology, new worldview, or, or autonomous worldview. But fascism shows that it's not, because fascism is born out of liberalism. It is not the same thing as it, there are reasons for that, but they're very close. They're so close that liberals are defenseless in a fight against fascism, by which then Tosaka says, therefore, materialists, Marxists, are the ones who need to fight fascism. And if liberals want to save themselves from fascism, they had better become materialists because they can't fight on their own ground. They'll lose. And that's what happened. What aspects of liberalism he was specifically criticizing? Uh, he goes on very extensively about uh, liberalism being uh, interpretive, like hermeneutic uh, philosophy. Um, I think what sort of distinguishes him from other anti-fascist scholars or critics of fascism that he goes deeply into sort of philosophical roots, uh, intellectual roots of fascism. How does he associate liberalism is fascism and in, in a philosophical sense so the first the best way to maybe start answering that question is what does he mean when he says liberalism in the 1930s because that's what he's talking about and liberalism for him in the 1930s and i think clearly also objectively in the 1930s in japan isn't the entirety of all liberal thought that has existed at all times and so what Tosaka does is he points out 
that originally the category and the ideology and the thought of liberalism and its ideals came from economics, economic thought way back in England and Scottish Enlightenment and the rest of it. And that was really the idea of freedom from government intervention from the state, but things that eventually we considered laissez-faire. It was a freedom from intervention. And so it was a freedom of entrepreneurs, actual commercial shop owners. So that was liberal capitalism based on the individual. And then from that economic thought, it did produce a corresponding political thought or political liberalism, which was related to not just economic liberalism, but also representative government and, and parliaments and the rest of it. The problem comes then when we are not in owner, operator, shopkeeper, liberal capitalism, or even entrepreneurial capitalism, but we're in the 1920s and 1930s with the enormous monopoly capitalisms and huge industrial concerns in Japan, the Zaibats, in post-war Japan, the Kadets. So Tosaka is very clear. He says that that economic liberalism, that's gone. That belongs to the past and it is not coming back. And so then the question is, what's the status of that earlier political liberalism that was also based on an individual, one person, one vote, representative government and the law, rule of law and the rest of it. That has also been changed immensely through monopoly capitalism and the rest. We now have state monopoly capitalism or finance capitalism and the relationship between the Zybots and government and the rest of it has eroded that idea of political liberalism. So for Tosaka then, he's got a third category. Cultural liberalism is what he says. It's basically freedom of conscience, freedom to be free in your thoughts. And in the 1930s in Japan, Tosaka argues, that is the only form of liberalism remaining. And so it really is the only way in which any sort of liberal, liberal ideas can express themselves. But the problem with that is freedom of conscience is exclusively negative in that it is a freedom from interference. It is a freedom from a freedom of conscience, as I mentioned. And in that sense, it doesn't have political weapons and it doesn't have economic weapons to fight monopoly capitalism, finance capitalism, or their fascist variations or what have you. And so it ultimately settles in literature and philology and, re and very often in the interior cont contemplation of the individual's freedom of conscience, very often shades into religious understandings and religion. And that, once you start going into it and you start looking at what the fascists are talking about, they're also talking about myths and contemplation and, and the rest of it. But that cultural liberalism is just too weak and doesn't have the political, economic, or intellectual tools to fight against fascism. And so, once you start, once you've reduced, uh, excuse me, liberalism to just the thoughts and the ideas of literary tropes and literary representations, there's what Tosaka says is there's nothing in that cultural liberalism that prevents you from have, looking at more Japanist myths or the rest of it. It's totally consistent with it. This is the family resemblance. It's not the same thing but it's a family resemblance with it. The way I look at that text and Tosaka's thought 
the text being the Japanese ideology. He says that liberalism can become fascist. I said it earlier as fascism is born of liberalism. What he says is liberalism, cultural liberalism, can become fascism without breaking with itself. His term is sono mama and sometimes sono mama day. It can stay liberal and be fascist. And that's the key. That's why philosophically incapable and therefore intellectually and ultimately politically incapable of fighting fascism. Now, what he's going to say elsewhere is that materialism is based in a theoretical ground that is anti-fascist, but therefore it's also anti-liberal because their liberalism and fascism are both these idealist, contemplative, and well, liberalism is contemplative. Fasci uh, fascism, Japanism is different. We can maybe talk about that. Uh, there is a, a way to, to distinguish those two because they're not the same, but they're so much the same. They're grounded in the same kind of philosophy, idealist philosophy, metaphysics, that they can't fight each other at the level of thought. Obviously, they can fight each other on the street. I mean, there's another interesting take on this. Um, what he says is these cultural liberals, because that's the only place that historically, objectively, liberalism exists now that it has been eradicated from the economic and political fields. Of course, these cultural liberals, and he'll call them literaturists, bungak shugika, they can have political thoughts, and they do. And many times that political thought is, might be anti-fascist. But what Tosaka stresses in chapter one of the Japanese ideology is that is not grounded in any theory. It's just their thoughts at the moment. And he has this great line. It's dismissive, but I think it should be. He calls them sentimental liberals. They're, they're anti-fascist as a hobby, as kind of their taste. But it's not grounded in anything significant. It's not grounded in anything philosophical. It doesn't have that base. And so not coincidentally, with a bit of stress, a little bit of harassment, it's these sentimental liberals who might say anti-fascist things, but without any substance behind it. Those are the groups that convert the, the Tenko phenomenon and convert to Japanist and fascist. And Tosaka is saying, of course, it's, it's an easy transition for them. They can do it, sono mama, with just a couple of tweaks. But that's the, a long-winded way. Uh, there's a bunch that goes into that, but that's how he thinks about liberalism and fascism. It's not just liberalism, it's cultural liberalism that takes certain forms in philosophy, like Japanese. Yeah, that's fascinating. And there's a lot to unpack, but it's amazing how relevant that critique is today. Recently watched this YouTube video where a group of fascist protesters are taking down Black Lives Matter signs and placards from a fence, and they're saying, uh, it's freedom of speech to put it up and it's freedom of speech to take it down. You know, the far right is very obsessed about free speech, right? And this idealism, sure. you know, it's being repeated today in, in various places, North America and Europe. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that it's similar to what Tosaka was saying about liberalism and, and, and Japanism and the relationship, because if you're saying freedom of speech, freedom of speech, that's purely formal. You said idealist and he would say idealist. It's purely, purely formal. Freedom of speech equals freedom of speech equals freedom of speech. 
And so that's the, the same way that Tosaka was saying that liberals can't fight Japanese intellectually because they're playing on the same ground they don't have, and the tools. And if, you're, if you've only got a formal definition of freedom of speech, content free, then yeah, that works. And that does. And so then you can, I mean, he didn't, Tosaka didn't say this, but I mean, it's not, it's not wrong to say, as you're pointing out, you weaponize the formality of freedom of speech against the freedom of speechers who were the liberals, but now they're the right, the alt-right or the right wing or the neo-fascists or what have you. I think that works. One of the things that is different, it's not contemporary in the way that you're just talking about now, but what's, what would Tosaka's, what would the explanation I just gave of the affinities and the family resemblances between liberalism and fascism of the 30s be today? Of course, we could find many examples like you did, uh, many YouTubes and, and issues, but we also find it in Japanese studies. And it's at, at a basic level. And I alluded to it earlier, which is, was Japan in pre-war and during the war fascist? And if you go through and you read a bunch of books on fascism, and then you read a bunch of books on Japan, for the most part, not a lot of them called Japan fascist during that time. And there was a whole slew of other words that are used. Uh, militarism is a big one. And I, I think there's reasons that that is not that helpful, which you can get into. Another, one, maybe the one of the most popular ones is ultra-nationalism. And I think this is the worst one of these because the very term itself, ultra-nationalism, suggests that at some point there's good nationalism, and then at some point, there's, uh, I guess, a quantitative tipping point where it's too much and it becomes bad nationalism and ultra-nationalism. And no one is ever able to define that point, and I think rightly because it's undefinable, because the, the framing is flawed. But the simplest way to dismiss that term, I think, would be to say, show how it's reducible to the silly question, nationalism, how much is too much? And this doesn't, I don't think this works at all. But... There is something here, and this is what I was saying. There's a, there is a difference between liberalism and fascism for Tosaka, and it's not in this quantitative tipping point to, from nationalism to ultranationalism. But what he says is, I get, he doesn't say this. What I'm saying is it's almost like two sides of the same coin in that liberalism is largely defined negatively as a freedom from, as I mentioned. And that works during smooth political and economic times, or it can be, it can may be made to appear to work during those times. If you get any sort of crisis or any sort of problems, suddenly that purely negatively defined freedom doesn't work. And the tipping point isn't the nationalism to ultranational. The tipping point is when that negativity must become active, conscious, and positive social positivity and throw content into the purely formal vessel. And when you get that, that's the difference between liberalism and Japanism. A negative understanding of freedom from to a positive understanding of freedom to. And I think that's the biggest difference. It's still at the level of philosophy, it's still sono mama. You can do it without changing anything. And, and that's what your example of freedom of speech versus freedom of speech uh, made me think of. The other way to think of that is Marx in chapter 10, right? Between equal rights, force decides. Yeah, sort of like a war of all against all uh, in this Hobbesian vision. Yeah, um, I, I suppose, I, I suppose it would, in this case, yes, 
in general. In this case, it would, and for Tosaka and this moment, it, it that all against all has been now reduced to two class struggle, bourgeois, idealist, proletariat, materialist. But right, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. I want to go back to Tosaka's definition of fascism. You said earlier that Tosaka thought fascism in Japan was based on feudalism, but also said he differentiated himself from uh, their Kozaha scholars and Marxists who, you know, who said the fascism is a product of feudal remnant. So like in, in light of that, and also like international debate on fascism that was taking place at the time, how is his definition of fascism different from other definitions? Sure. Yeah. So one of the places that he talks about this is obviously in the Japanese ideology. And he's got this idea, he's got this statement where he says, Japanism is a mechanism by which capitalism, this is not a quote, this is a bit of a summary, but Japanism is a mechanism or fascism is a mechanism by which capitalism can recruit the middle classes in the broadest sense, the masses. And it does that by putting forward the illusion that the capitalist state and capitalism itself can represent and fulfill their desires and their issues. And this, and it's especially effective at this moment in the 30s because after 29, 30 and the banking crisis and the rest of it, and even earlier in Japan with the crisis starting in 26 and 27, the middle classes have lost faith both in Marxist agitation on behalf of the proletariat and the rule of naked capitalists of the grand bourgeoisie and the rest of it. And so you get another group that tries to represent and recruit the middle classes to its cause. And that's one of the definitions of fascism that Tosaki uses. Now it's the broadest one, meaning this is the most abstract one. And we need, in order any given situation, we need to figure out what form that more abstract version takes. But fascism is different in that he says it's ideal or it's imagined constituency, political constituency is not the same as its actual constituency. Its actual constituency is, is going to be, and if you've got Seiyu Kai and Min Seito and the two big parties at the time, one represents more industrial capital, one represents more um, agricultural capital. But its constituencies, its imagined constituencies are the middle-class farmers or the middle-class industrialists and shopkeepers and the rest. And it's that disconnect and that disconnect between ideal and real constituencies or I should say imagined and real constituencies, that needs to be filled in by ideology. And there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. And what he's saying is that in Japan, that filling in, that fascist mechanism that sutured those two really not totally compatible constituencies was Japanism. And it took the form of reintroducing feudal ideology, thought, affects, and behaviors into the political realm in order to suture that split between great industrialists and shopkeepers and middle class, who otherwise might have had very different class interests. They can be made to sort of work together at the ideological level with 
fascism. And so fascism in that sense is a mechanism that works through that. And that's, I've been reading some versions of uh, some other theories of fascism internationally. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to translate this text because especially in the older and really still today, if you read a book on how fascism works or what is fascism or, you know, liqueur, Paxton's a good one, but um, there are several of them. Japan's not in there. There's almost, Japan is almost never included. It's often mentioned, but not in a theoretical sense. At best, it says, and similar things happened in Japan. But it often doesn't even say that. It'll say Japan isn't fascist, it's militarist, and drop it. Japan isn't fascist, it's ultranationalist, and drop it. Or Japan is in the uh, index or an appendix or something like this. Uh, but it's just left out. And I think this text, the Japanese ideology, shows not only is that wrong, but in many ways, Japan is almost, oh, I mean, may as well say this. You can edit it out if you want. It's almost a purer form of fascism than Germany or Italy in this sense. It didn't, it wasn't bound up by the will of the individual person called the Fuhrer because the emperor doesn't function like that in Japanese fascism. Even if the emperor is the centerpiece, it's not really the, the personal will of the emperor who's reigning and ruling in a way like Mussolini did. And so in that sense, it's got a lot more room to maneuver to the point where it's much more vague. The imperial house, the ideology of the imperial way allows a bunch of people to operate under this. And Tosaka eventually shows that this can give birth to a form that none of those other theories consider, which he actually calls constitutional fascism because something else is operating. There's like a force field out there that's operating to take care of and discipline and tweak things towards it. And that is not the individual Mussolini or the individual Hitler, it's Japanese-ness itself, but not a free-floating one, one with actual content to it. That is part of the way in which he not only defines fascism, argues that Japan is a fascist country at this time, but also expands by looking at the Japanese case, expands and deepens our knowledge of the general category fascism itself. And that's what I like best about this book. I mean, it's not just to say, oh, we know a lot about fascism from the European context. If we add a Japanese case study to these books, we'll know a little bit more. I, th there's much more here. In fact, if we study this Japanese case, we're going to learn something much more about fascism that we just didn't get before. It's not just an addition to it. And, uh, and I think this is also consistent with Tosaka. One of his favorite quotes he says it in various ways from time to time, says something along the lines, and I use this for everything now, is there's no such thing as a general problem. All problems are specific. What we call a general problem is a specific problem that can move the whole. And in this case, the Japanese form of fascism can actually really expand and deepen and even fundamentally change our definition of the category fascism itself, regardless of place or time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I completely agree that I read uh, a lot about fascism uh, since 2016, but I've been quite frustrated and puzzled by why 
they almost exclusively focus on Italian and German cases, maybe to a lesser extent Spain. But Japan, yeah, Japan is uh, almost always mentioned either in passing or not at all. Um, some say it's like they didn't have charismatic individuals, but they, or also they didn't have a party, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's exactly wrong in many cases. I mean, it gets taken down to the Fuhrer principle. The principle makes a principle of the Fuhrer. And if you don't have that, you don't have fascism. And I think Tosaka is not only disagreeing with that, he's saying, as I mentioned, without a Fuhrer, you can have an even more effective fascism. But also those books, to, and, and uh, Hartunian mentioned this a, a long ago, uh, and it, it's still, we see it all the time. Those books really don't make any effort whatsoever to do what Tosaka is doing here, which is distinguish between a fascist ideology and a fascist state or a fascist movement or a fascist party, as you mentioned. And those aren't the same things, but it's perfectly possible to have lots of fascists and fascism running through society and ordering society, even if you don't have brown shirts, even if you don't have a Fuhrer. Yeah, um, and you mentioned earlier that the, the notion of Japanese-ness uh, as inherent in the case of fascism in Japan. What does Tosaka say about the concept of Japanese-ness and how mythology and philological texts created a cultural sense of Japanese-ness that's seemingly or not outwardly fascist, but create a cultural ground for fascism to grow? kind of sort of become a common sense for Tosaka? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you've, you've clearly hit on the big things that I have been relying on but haven't said. Philology, Japanese-ness, I mentioned, but also common sense. And the, the great part about Tosaka's thought is how tightly and coherently all of these things are worked out, theoretically, in his uh, criticism and his, his philosophy. And it's also really hard to talk about it in, re in chronological time because they all inflect each other. And so I'm probably not doing a great job of it, but we should put some of these together. So the philology question, I mean, on the one hand, it's, we're talking about fascism as like an explosion of ecstatic orgiastic violence and, and the answer is philology. I mean, that's, that's counterintuitive. That is an uncommonsensical understanding. But nonetheless, he does work through and show how that happens. And philology comes into play in what I was saying earlier in how you had sort of a negative free-floating liberalism that could include anything in its understandings because it was largely just inside the head of a liberal thinker in his or mostly his or her study and therefore wasn't really politically valuable in fighting. There's another version of that. When you, when you get the Japanist version, you don't have a totally empty vessel through which you can have all these wonderful thoughts and imaginations and yearnings and express them in poetry and literature and the rest. With the philo philological, that's the also paired with that inversion or that tipping point from freedom from liberalism to freedom to Japanism. And so the philology is where you get the content for those thoughts and that ideology. And the content overwhelmingly is taken from 
classic Japanese texts. I mean, obvious ones are the Nihon Shoki and the Kojiki, but there are Man Yoshu and there are many, many more. But those are the big ones. Those are, and especially, and eventually those become state sponsored, state sanctioned versions of it. And then we get new versions of them with Koktai no Hongi and Koktai Meicho in the, in the late 30s and the rest of it. But the, another way to think about it, before we get into the admittedly tedious, but still important understanding of how philology was used to create fascism is the difference between having a free-floating cultural liberalism to later, once you have a crisis and a collapse and you can't allow everything to be negatively defined, now you need an actual and policed content-filled culture. And in Japan, at the time, that was overwhelmingly taken from archaic texts that were then deployed as a solution to contemporary 1930s problems, labor disputes and the rest of it. And Tosaka keeps mentioning, I don't have any exact citations. Uh, I haven't hunted them down yet, but he keeps mentioning an example would be Buddhist priests or Buddhist scholars who want to take some sutra as a way to ameliorate class struggle and labor disputes here in the here and now. That's the sort of thing that is, is, is philological. And for him, he's not, it's not philological because he has the term philologism. Works better in Japanese as bunkengakushugi, but it's an ideology of, of the uh, archaic. And so the idea is you go back into the past and retrieve these things and deploy them in the present. But what Tosak is saying there is, in that sense, the present is dying, right? You're forcing the present to live in the past. He calls it a, re a regressive historical ca category. I think it's like gyakushu teki na hanchu or something like this. Oh yeah, gyaku rekshi teki na hanchu. And he also calls this the archaic or the kodai. But this, this is really complicated and I probably shouldn't have jumped in with the conclusion first, but it takes a lot of work to go through this. Um, uh, it takes about, let's, let me think. It takes about four chapters in his book to go through <laughs> this. Yeah, it's quite dense and very complex. Yeah. Um, I, I realized I didn't get to the Japanese-ness part. I, I did in my head, but I didn't actually say it. So what I was saying is that you had the infinite liberal, the negative infinite liberal tipping over to the positive, finite, nationalist, Japanist content. And that was the freedom from to freedom to. But the freedom to or the freedom for doesn't become a freedom for an individual because it's coming from non-contemporary, ancient, archaic texts. And what's being found there is Japanese texts and Japanese-ness. So the freedom that is created, the freedom to that is created in the current, in the present by being found etymologically, philologically in the past is a freedom, not for you and me, but a freedom for Japanese-ness itself. Japanese culture is gonna be the only free subject, the only historical subject that has agency in this period. Now, of course, this isn't true in an objective materialist sense, but it is true ideologically. It is an ideology. It doesn't ultimately work, but you need historical materialist criticism to show why it doesn't work and to see how it worked and to see how it does 
for a while work. But the freedom for, the freedom to, the free subject that comes out of this procedure of philological research to solve a social crisis of the 1930s is Japanese culture itself. I said Japanese-ness. He doesn't say that, but I think it's the same thing. That's how we got there in a very convoluted way. I probably made it more complicated than it is. No, you're doing great. Um, actually, that I was thinking, you know, the whole the freedom to. Yeah. And tied up to our earlier discussion about Tosaka's class analysis and the role of petty bourgeois. And there's massive crisis of capitalism happening, you know, and probably a lot of petty bourgeois middle-class people experiencing existential angst, right? Absolutely. And they need something to cling to, you know, sort of sense of comfort in a time of crisis. And it also allowed the state to counter class struggle, intensifying class conflict, and a lot of radical organizing that was happening at the time. Yes. One thing to add would be the crisis is a crisis of capitalism. And everyone thought that, right? It's obviously capitalism is in some kind of crisis after 29, 30, 33, and the rest of it. And so the middle classes, the petit bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie, as you mentioned, are not really on the side of the working class. They never really have been. But the crisis of capitalism also taints and renders suspect the bourgeoisie, the grand bourgeoisie, the, the capitalists, the zaibatsa heads, and the rest of it. So they can't just double down on that. And that's the big difference with this huge crisis and collapse of the gold standard and collapse of everything that was, atten- was attached to it. Right, which was largely the, the mediation of social relations mediated by money and commodity relations. And that has collapsed. And so there's not a moment to just double down on cap- more capitalism. And fascism is the way in which capitalism defends itself by not just doubling down on it, but doing that recruitment of the petit bourgeoisie along those lines I mentioned before between the ideal and real constituency. And that's why it's largely a mechanism. And that's why ultimately, as I started with, Tomasaka said, it's a form of capitalism. And you mentioned the state coming into play. And one of the things that happens there, and also we should mention here, the military. The military coming into play in a capitalist way, a fascist form of capitalist capitalism, because they can represent or appear to represent something that is not nakedly private interest capitalism that the bourgeoisie has represented and has collapsed. They can, they can present, they can imagine themselves and appear to represent the petit bourgeoisie as Japanese people, not as class antagonists. Mm. And so one way to think about it, and a lot of people say that, I mean, Zizek has a version of it, Massimiliano Tomba has a version of it, Artunian mentions it, Tosaka says it too. This is in many ways, an anti-class struggle form of class struggle. 
because ultimately, if we follow it through and what the objective effects are, it is clearly deepening and strengthening and redoing and rebuilding capitalism that has collapsed. It's not rebuilding, you know, it's certainly not communism, it's not socialism, it's not some sort of religious community or the rest of it. It's capitalist. But it's capitalism in the name of non-class trouble, and this goes by many names, like Gemeinschaft capitalism. It goes by the uh, capitalism without capitalism, which means capitalism without class struggle. Now, of course, from Tosaka's materialist perspective, that must be an ideological position because that is objectively not possible, maintaining capitalism, because if you go through the categories of capitalism, it produces and reproduces class struggle by its mere operation. But it can appear at times in this way to be non-class struggle. And, I'll, and suddenly we're off talking about communal capitalism or we're not even talking about communal capitalism because that the word capitalism is a problem. So it's called something else, probably has a proper noun to it. It's probably called the Japanese way or the imperial way or Japanism itself. And some of them explicitly said fascism. I mean, that was a positive thing at the time. Other times they'd say like Zentai Shugi or totalitarianism. There's a bunch of things going on. But Tosaka's got a great line in one of them when he mentions Japanism and in the way that I just did saying, it must be an ideological position because it doesn't really work objectively at the level of class, at the level of material relations of production and material forces of production. He says, when he mentions Jap Japanism in one of the chapters, later chapters, he immediately glosses it and says, fascists are really fond of taking proper names and making them categories, like see Japanism and the rest of it. I, don't know, I thought that was funny. Yeah, it's really interesting and kind of reminds me of Nico Polantis, who was a Greek Marxist, uh, also an analyst of fascism. He said fascism is sort of a petty bourgeois ideology as a sort of mishmash of aspirations to become bourgeois, but also some elements of proletarian ideology, like rebellious anti-establishment stands, but it is overall, its effect is to support capitalism. But with some tinge of like pseudo-revolutionary stance, and we see that today with a little like anti-tax, you know, sort of, or anti-mask, right? Like, or right, new world right. order, it has kind of like weird, uh, anti-establishment, anti-authority attitude on part of the fascists. But it's, of course, and, you know, if you remove the cover, it's, you know, a lot of these people are pretty bourgeois. Like the great example would be the, uh, the riot at Capitol Hill in January. Sure. Someone did a study of like demography of the, these protesters and a lot of them are like business owners, self-employed or... Some of them might even like bourgeois, like their CEOs, they flew in with their private jet. Yeah, oh. absolutely. I mean, that that ran through the whole Trump. I mean, after Trump was elected, there was that really shallow soul searching by journalists. Like, how did we miss this? And then it, they immediately imagined, oh, it's a revolt of the working class. And then they went and looked. And then they, they'd think they had found some brilliant counterintuitive insight by saying, in fact, 
most of them have some education. Most of them have some college. Most of them have the, are independent owners. And, and that was the end of the analysis. But if they had read this, which is asking too much because I hadn't finished it yet, it's, <laughs> that would, made, would have made perfect sense to Polancis or Krakow or, or Tosaka. But the level of journalism in the United States anyway, when they did that, thought they had discovered some counterintuitive understanding because they just immediately imagined it must be really the poor that are doing it, the poor and the uneducated. And they were totally confused when it wasn't the poor and the uneducated. Now, it wasn't the hedge fund managers who were in the streets, but I think this is an example of what Tosak is talking about. The ideal and the imagined constituencies can form some sort of imagined belief that they're both working on the same thing. The people in the streets rioting and the people voting and essentially our equivalent of the Zybots. Ah, that's that's stretching the metaphor too far, but um, that's stretching the meaning of Zybots too far. But the same idea, grand bourgeoisie kind of work. So there become this kind of whole like Japanese nation in the idea of the shared Japanese identity that supposedly transcends the class class differences. Yeah, and in this sense, we've arrived at what a lot of people do think about, right? That being a sense of a harmonious Japan is a way to to get rid of social strife. But because we did it the way we did it and we went through Tosaka, the implications of saying that in 1930s are different than normal ways. People say, oh, the appeal to the nation and community is a way to bring us together, stop the division, stop our partisan partisanism. Um, but it's usually that when it is normally spoken on CNN or in textbooks on Japan, it's coming from that liberal center. And we arrived at it from a different point, which means our implications of it are, are wrong, which means it's not the true point. It's not the harmonious equilibrium point between the two extremes of fascists of left and right. It's actually an ideological fiction that forwards the right or it forwards capitalism in this sense. And, that, that, and then we can keep going with Tosaka's idea that liberalism is much closer to fascism. And if you look at it historically, whenever pressured or ever, ever harassed or just with a little bit of nuisance, liberals always run right, never left. And I think this book, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff on the philology and phenomenology of Heidegger and Watsuji Tetsudo and the rest of it. And it can sound very dry, but it's actually getting at that hugely important point. Why does it always go that way? And how might it go differently? There's less of that in here. There's just hints of how it might go differently. But as a critique and a criticism, I mean, I think this thing is unparalleled. This, this Japanese ideology text, I mean. Yeah, I think Tazaka's ideas are lessons for today. And especially the concept of Japanese-ness lives on today. Yeah. And even though fascism as a, a form of government is supposedly has passed in Japan. It lives on as a sort of commonly accepted assumption about Japanese identity. You know, there, I think, you know, the myth of Japan being a like distinctively unique, weird or traditional and deliberately packaged as cool Japan by yeah. the Japanese government as a PR campaign. And then look, mm -hmm the white supremacists are now, you know, like Richard Spencer or Jared Taylor, all these American uh, fascists are saying, oh, look, Japan is, 
this ethno-nationalist utopia. And I think it's really important to combat fascism and organize against it on the streets, but also in the realm of ideas. But also like it's really important to challenge the so-called common sense about right. Japanese-ness and Japanese identity that is often seductive and acts as a trap. Especially in the diaspora, I find like people, a lot of like Japanese people turn to identitarian notion of Japanese-ness and um, you know, by itself, like it may be harmless, but yeah, I can see lot, that. Because yeah, you know, Japanese ahead, fascism was, in a sense, anti-white. They wanted to counter the hegemony of Western imperialism, and so there's some like a little bit of anti-white rhetoric and ideology there. So that today that might sound like a progressive idea, and I mean, white supremacy is a thing, but at the same time, like counterposing Japanese nationalism against that is not cannot be a solution it's actually quite reactionary you know not to mention the whole history of colonization and imperialist plunder that happened under that name I I agree I think that gets at something that I haven't talked about that much um, your point about that it can it, it can be anti-white it can be anti-western imperialism and in many ways it was um, what I haven't talked about as much is everything I think depends on the method by which you approach that problem. And Tosak has got a very rigorous materialist method based on common sense and everydayness, which are enormous categories. But the method by which we go about criticizing that can make all the difference on what point we arrive at. Because there are some, at the time, it was seen, it could be presented as progressive and that it was anti-Western imperialist. There's some books, um, not all that old, that make the argument that if we, that it come from, it was anti-white and therefore it was progressive. It was about, about the, it was the emergence and the birth of non-white power and non-white thought. And uh, I'm not even gonna mention the name of that book. Um, but if you don't do it rigorously through Tosaka's understanding of history and historical time, and, and you don't have some relationship to the material forces of production and the material relations of production and ideologies of that, then you're in this free-floating thing and you can end up in valorizing something that was really quite nasty and ultimately fascist. That's a bad way of saying it, but the, the method matters. And Tosaka does this a lot in his writings. And it, sometimes it's you read it and you think it's very tedious, but if you read enough of it, he'll say at the end of many chapters and not just this book, but other, other parts of his writings and many of his writings, he'll work through something for pages and pages and then come up with a declarative sentence. So we've arrived at this. He said, now you may, the reader may be thinking that all we've done is come to some sort of historical common sense that everybody knows. And then he immediately says, but if we hadn't done it this way, we wouldn't have seen the ideological valences and the implications of this common sense. And so really it's the method that distinguishes this because we went back to it. Idealist method, idealist philosophy versus materialist method, materialist philosophy, or thinking, of, thinking with categories of eternity and continuity or thinking with categories of historicity and discontinuity and rupture and difference. Mm -hmm.